So, ladies and gentlemen, um, good morning. My name is Mirette Mabrouk. I am the Deputy Director and uh, Director for Research and Programs at the Hariri Center for the Middle East at the Atlantic Council. And I would like to welcome you today to this very, um, hopefully very interesting and very important event. Now, today's post-Cold War security order is being threatened. Okay, it's being challenged. And the consequences to globalization, as we understand it, uh, can be immense. Now, at the Council, we like to face threats and challenges head-on. So, three years ago, um, the Brent Scowcroft Center for uh, International Security partnered with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, in Sweden to come up with the Transatlantic Partnership for a Global Future. And together, they've been working to identify global trends to help design better strategies to navigate today's uncertain global landscape. Now, we can't predict the future, no one can, but if you uncover long-term trends, you can use those trends to help make informed decisions. And those decisions later can help you guide us towards a future that we, are, we would desire and we would want. Now, committed partners, having committed partners like Sweden, which fully understands the implications of the current global challenges, uh, well, when we have that, we can um, work together to develop practical and actionable solutions. Yeah. This transatlantic cooperation is more needed now than ever, and there are few places where this is true than the Middle East. The Middle East, as many of you know, is often spoken of in homogenous terms. It's the Middle East, and as many of you know, that is not the case at all. It is a very eclectic mix of different governing systems, different religions, different ethnicities that have in recent years increasingly spilled over into sectarian strife and sometimes outright civil war. The consequences of this sectarian strife and the civil war will continue to be felt in those regions and through much of the rest of the world for many years to come. Countries that have been lucky enough to not deal with outright civil war are still dealing with their own problems. In the aftermath of the Arab awakenings, many governments have failed to, many governments and their institutions have failed to keep up with the demands and aspirations of their peoples, resulting in economic hardship, youth unemployment, security issues, and a very beleaguered civil society. However, there is also much reason for hope in the, re in the region, okay? particularly among the region's innovative and entrepreneurial youth. And if that sounds like a bit of a riddle, we are lucky enough to have a panel today, two panels today, who are very well equipped to help us get to the bottom of this riddle. We're also fortunate enough today to have with us the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Ms. Anna Kashodo. Now, the Secretary's career has uniquely equipped her to cope with the demands and complexities and nuances of dealing with the Foreign Service. She's had an extraordinary career, and she's capped it recently by becoming the, the Executive Director before she became Secretary of State, um, the Executive Director of the Dark Hammarskjöld Foundation. Now, along the way, she negotiated the EU Treaty for Sweden as Ambassador, 2000 to 2001, she directed the Department of European Security Policy at the Ministry from 2000-2006, and then she headed for Rome, where she was Assistant Director General for Food and Agricultural Organization before returning to Stockholm to take up a position as Ambassador at Large. 
Through today's conversations, we hope to get at the root causes of conflict in the Middle East and discuss new and innovative ways to tackle these issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a true pleasure to be here, and I'm very grateful to the Atlantic Council for working with us and for organizing uh, this event. Um, I hope that we together will be able to address uh, the very uh, intricate problems pressing the region and also affecting uh, all of us. Um, the Middle East is undergoing a huge transformation and, and it has its lows and its ups. And I think that the different crises also require uh, acute solutions. There are many experts here today, and I will speak to you from a diplomatic and not an expert pers perspective, but I hope to be able at least to raise a few questions uh, that will be of, of importance also for the discussions that we will have this morning. Uh, we're living in, in times of war in the Middle East re region. We see return to authoritarian leaderships, shrinking space for human rights, unemployment, not least uh, among the young, migration uh, in, uh, on a scale that we've not seen for a long time, natural resource scarcity, uh, climate change, along with the uh, political and social polarization, sometimes taking uh, the shape uh, of religious strife. I think we have to carve out a lot of time in our agendas to look ahead and to create a vision for a sustainable, peaceful and prosperous Middle East and also to carve out the role that the European Union can play, that Europe can play and the role that the US can play and the roles that we can play together and together with the region. Um, let me say a few words of where I come from. When I was a very young diplomat, I was involved in an exercise between the United States and Sweden, uh, aiming at dealing with PLO, uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And that led in 1989 to the first uh, dialogue between the US, this was with Secretary Schultz, the first dialogue uh, between the US and PLO and further on to the Oslo Agreement. Uh, and uh, when you've once worked on the Middle East issues, when you've gotten to know the Palestinians and the Israelis, it's really hard to leave them behind because it's such a fascinating region. Uh, and I also believe that uh, the way forward, finding a two-state solution uh, in real terms on the ground would also make a contribution to uh, finding the way forward for the rest of, of the continent. You may not know, but um, Sweden has been involved in, in Middle East issues since the uh, 20s, actually. And some of you may have heard of Folke Bernadotte, who was the UN mediator in 1948, and who was killed in any mission when he tried to find uh, a plan for uh, accommodating Israel and accommodating the Palestinians in uh, the aftermath of the, of the Second uh, World War. Since then, we've been very engaged in North Africa, in the wider Middle East region, working closely in development cooperation, and not least, I must say, uh, in trade. 
Uh, of course, our long-term goal is to have stability, peace, and prosperity in the Middle East and in North Africa. Uh, I believe that we and the people living there uh, want a region characterized by inclusion, tolerance, respect, uh, understanding, uh, Im implementation of human rights, gender equality, welfare and prosperity, rule of law and a flow of ideas, people and trade. As we all know, this has not been the, ca the case for some time. Today, despite enormous assets in the region, um, as well as enormous needs in the region, the challenges very much outweigh uh, the solutions. Here, I believe it's important that we look at the wider picture as well, that we do not get into Orientalism, that we see what is happening as human activities, human features, and that we realize that what would work in the Middle East is also what, what would work globally or in our own continents. For example, as President Obama noted in his Cairo speech, now many years ago, as long as we focus on our differences, we will empower those who sow hatred rather than peace. So we should face today's and tomorrow's challenges with humility and in the spirit of mutual cooperation and benefit. And the question today, of course, uh, some seven, eight years after is, can we? Um, the symptoms of today, uh, indeed, they are very hard to face and to tackle, but I need we have to go deeper uh, and turn our common attention to the root causes. And I believe some of the most important are um, lack of inclusion, liberty and freedom, lack of hope, lack of equality in general, and lack of uh, gender equality, um, and of course the lack of transparency and rule of law. Another root cause is of course undiversified economies, mono-economies. I would also like to add rapid urbanization, something that we see everywhere uh, globally today, but that is also affecting this uh, region where uh, leaving the countryside would maybe not uh, take you to uh, a glory, a, a future, and, but you will at the same time with social media and globalization know what you're not getting. We have demographic trends that are very obvious in North Africa, of course also in Sub-Saharan Africa, and imbalances that are created by uh, the demographic change. I'd also like to mention the impact of climate change, water scarcity. Some claim that the ongoing war in Syria and uh, the, the uprising of the opposition in Syria was to a certain extent affected uh, by the lack of, uh, uh, with, of drought and other natural resource related uh, issues. Let me also mention the, um, the history in a way and the artificial borders. Um, they mean a lot to the people living in, in that region and they have created a lot of, of unrest over the years. Uh, 
before moving on, I'd also like to remind us of the state of affairs in the European Union, and to, to a certain extent also here in, in the United States. Uh, we've had a lot of difficulties that we've had to face in the European Union. Our main goal is, of course, to stick together, uh, but we see less respect for rule of law in some countries. We see tendencies towards authoritarianism, and we uh, have a population in many of our countries that feel exclusion. I think there are some features that are similar here in this country also, but since I, I'm a diplomat, I will, not go, I will not go into depth. But I think we are facing something here that we need to look into and that those features are very relevant when we are also projecting uh, our power in the Middle East region, be it soft power or be it other uh, powers. What's the attractivity that, that we, the West, uh, can, uh, can provide? Let me say a few words about, about this uh, very heterogeneous uh, region. It's extremely diverse. And I think we have one country that has been very successful uh, over the years, and that is Israel. Um, we have countries that have very large populations and economies, Egypt, Iran, Turkey, somewhat outside of the Middle East region, but very important. Algeria, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. We have a group of countries that have very high ambitions in the region, uh, Iran, Turkey again, and, and Saudi Arabia. We have a group of very rich countries, uh, Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates. Um, some of them now feeling squeezed between uh, the tensions between um, Saudi Arabia and Iran, having both Shia and Sunni populations in, the, in, them, in their countries. We have the fragility of Yemen, Syria, Iraq again, uh, Egypt uh, and Lebanon, also, of course, interrelated. We have diversified economies, but some of them in crisis in Egypt, Iran and Turkey. We have mono-economies in many of the countries, and that is, of course, what we believe could be uh, a root cause uh, when it comes to not being able to move uh, forward. Uh, we have millions of refugees and migrants in the region. In Europe, we talk a lot about the migration crisis and that we received many migrants the last few years. But the numbers in Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Saudi Arabia uh, and others, uh, they really outweigh uh, what, what Europe has been uh, dealing with. What would also be subsets of the difficulties that the region faces, of course, how different uh, countries in the Arab group, how differently they now view the Palestinian situation. Another aspect that is important is, I believe, uh, the relationship between the Gulf, the war in Yemen, and the Horn of Africa, uh, with the Red Sea very narrow, uh, uh, being a very obvious link between the two regions, with the Horn of Africa being even more fragile than uh, 
the Middle East uh, as such. So I really believe we have to keep an eye on, on this. Let me also mention uh, after a very recent visit in, in Jordan that we can see how they are trying to cope with the two million refugees that they have, some in camps, most of them living in, in the Jordan society, and how they are also struggling uh, with uh, making the refugees' lives useful and meaningful, but also trying to uphold a barrier against terrorism. And it's, the jury is out, I think, on how they will be able to tackle this being uh, for a very long time a stable, a stable uh, country. So let me say a few words about how we view some of the uh, work that should be done in the region and that we hoped would be done after the Arab Spring. I believe that we hoped for enlightenment, education, critical thinking, uh, paving the way for rights, for equality and for, for welfare, uh, and that our trade and aid would play uh, a role here. Uh, and I'm sure that we have to look again at, or we are working on it, but that we have to have a second look at how we do that. I'd also like to say a few words about climate change. Uh, in a generation or so, I believe it will have an even huger impact on the region. Um, today's water scarcity, result of population growth, mismanagement, urbanization, and industrialization uh, will take further tolls. And we really need to uh, support those countries that would want to make a contribution to the Paris Agreement on how to deal with climate change, mitigation, and adaptation. And I believe this is a very important factor. We should be preparing, I believe, also for um, continued migration. Um, we may, uh, and this is of course of, of key importance for, for Europe. Migration is very often useful. Uh, for Sweden it was fantastic for all the Swedes that were received in this country uh, 100 years ago and, and back. Uh, and I hope that that has also helped uh, the US. It, it has certainly been a, an asset for for Sweden. But we also have to look at this as a risk, not least for the countries themselves, because we know that those that migrate, if they are not refugees from war, would be the most important production factors in their societies. We train the middle class, uh, we get new, uh, we get youngsters to, to uh, be digitalized, to be entrepreneurs, uh, and I just spoke to an American colleague that had left Afghanistan and he told me that the people that leave now and they do not have much hope anymore, I hope they are wrong, <laughs> uh, they are the ones that we, were, that we helped to get the tools for a better, better life. So it's a very tricky situation for leaders that really want to uh, make their countries prosperous also to come over the first hurdles and uh, to build the nation uh, together with, uh, with the young uh, people. It's not difficult to understand why people leave, because um, 
if we look at the instability, one can say that about 95% of the people actually live in instable uh, states. Uh, this is because of uh, climate change and water scarcity, and it's of, of course because of the many civil wars and proxy wars that we see in the region. The playing field has completely changed, as we just heard after the end of the Second World War, when we had hopes after the Arab Spring. Uh, maybe the turning point was the awful attack on September 11. Um, many in the Middle East believe that what happened in Iraq in 2003 uh, was a negative turning point. Others talk about what we did together in Libya in in 2011. Um, so there have been many setbacks since then, and we've not seen democracy and rule of law uh, prevail, but rather more authoritarianism after those events. Yesterday, Sweden um, reopened our embassy in Tunisia. And Tunisia, where the Arab Spring started, is actually a beacon of hope. They're doing fine and they're dealing with their, the threats against the country coming from terrorism and they're looking into all the possibilities to build a well-functioning nation. I know that early in the 60s uh, gender equality uh, was placed on the Tunisian agenda. So I would like to claim <laughs> that the role of women and men together in Tunisia has played a very important role, and that is now a very good foundation for taking that country forward. And it's a small country, but we need to work with them to help them uh, succeed. Other changes are, of course, of importance too for what we can do and how we perceive uh, the situation. Uh, we see a growing influence uh, in our own regions, but also in the Middle East region from Asia, particularly from China and India. And they are, of course, very important partners, sometimes with different entry points. But we believe that uh, global cooperation with them on how to be a good partner in the Middle East is of key importance. So the question is now, uh, what is happening next? Um, as Haas has said, do we need to fasten seat belts and expect decades of unrest and wars? Or could we work for uh, stability, uh, prosperity, and democracy, uh, working together uh, with uh, also other countries to deal long term? with the root causes in order to have uh, a well-functioning region that is so very much a neighbor to, to Europe. I believe that the key aspect of, of this conversations, uh, conversation um, would also be to pick up uh, the long-term analysis and that our is pointing to deterioration. State failure continues, 
the mono-economies are likely to uh, continue, since we know the changes when it comes to the oil uh, market. Uh, climate change impact will worsen. We most likely will see growing gaps. As I said, involuntary migration. And as it looks today, growing tensions between the main regional uh, actors. And I believe that what we see is not a religious uh, war. What we see is religion being used because many witnesses, many people I've met said that before in uh, Damascus or in um, many other countries, we lived side by side and we didn't know who was Christian or, or Jew or Sunni or Shia. We've seen this before, we saw it in the Western Balkans. And it's of course very, very important to be, to be aware. I've been alluding to the global factors many in times in my intervention and I believe, and I come back to that, that the, the oil economies, the use of fossil fuels, uh, are very much related to the situation in those countries. And I visited Saudi Arabia last week, and I can see how they are now trying to diversify their economy, even given a chance to, to women uh, to become uh, actors on the labor market, because there is a realization that we cannot build a full-fledged society with only one source of income. And, it, and that is actually good that people have a job go to. Um, other global factors are of course the change of economic power towards Asia. We need to find ways to work with other big powers so that they do not uh, act as spoilers. Most likely we, see, we will see a decrease in the influence of the European Union at, at least for the immediate years when we are working on our uh, own internal issues. I, as a foreign policy person, I hope, of course hope that the EU will continue to be a very active global actor and we have a new strategy. But a, a good guess, I think, is that we will not be able to act as we used a few years ago. Uh, the growth of global inequalities is, from my perspective, a key issue. It's a national issue in most of our countries. And how we deal with welfare uh, and social inclusion, I think, is decisive, both nationally and internationally. Then we have demographic changes in Africa. It's, of course, not global, but it will affect us globally since uh, the population will double and the young population will be very, very... Uh, very much uh, growing. Um, the climate issue uh, will affect, some say, about 1.5 billion people. Knowing that we are about 7 billion, this is a very big uh, number. And finally, armed conflicts are obviously very, very hard to solve today, and I think we are all struggling with uh, dealing with all the facts that we see uh, day after day. So what do we do? I hope the panels will have an answer. Um, uh, but some other questions are, will 
terrorism and violent extremism be defeated uh, directly through uh, violent means or through prevention or through the societal measures that I talked about before. As a member of the coalition uh, against Daesh, uh, Sweden is very much dedicated, of course, because of uh, the risks and the suffering uh, involved uh, in the Middle East region, but of course also because it affects uh, all of us in our own, in our own countries. Another question is, will we be able to impact countries that do not at all need our economic support? Uh, uh, Europe and Sweden as uh, traditional um, development cooperators, donors, we've used uh, aid also as a leverage for a conversation or imposing uh, what we believe are the right uh, societal features when it comes to rule of law and democracy and, and human rights. But maybe that is also uh, something that is not um, having any, any impact anymore. So what does this mean for our self-image? Uh, how do we uphold democracy? How do we reconquer democracy? And is that important for how we uh, relate uh, to uh, the Middle East and to other regions. In this era of uh, growing isolationism, authoritarianism, here and there, uh, shouldn't we move more towards collaboration? What can the UN do? What is multilateralism? Uh, what can it contribute? What can regional cooperation contribute? across the Mediterranean, in the Middle East, uh, in Europe itself, where we also have our own uh, wars and, and concerns. Is there a role for the Bretton Woods institutions that have not yet been identified? Uh, how do we build the necessary trust globally? Uh, what is the role of the diaspora from the Middle East that is uh, often very are they are very often important members of our own uh, societies um, isn't this also about hope and I would like to explain why Sweden recognized uh, Palestine when this government took office two years ago it was because we wanted a solution we wanted a peaceful solution and we saw that after what I told you the initiation of the US PLO dialogue in 19. 89 after the Oslo agreement that not much headway had been made and we wanted to give hope to young Palestinians and young Israelis that have never seen anything but tension and occasional wars. Uh, so that was the reasoning behind and we now as we enter the Security Council as a non-permanent member for the two years to come uh, we will of course pay very close attention to the wider, uh, wider Middle East region, to the uh, Israeli-Palestinian situation, and to the immediate concerns coming from this uh, region, Yemen, Syria, Libya, Iraq, 
we're a little naive, we Swedes, so we hope to be a do-gooder, a bridge builder. We know we're very small, uh, but we also know that we've been able to run our own country in a very successful way and that we've had peace for a long time. We believe that being elected, beating Italy and the Netherlands was in a way a, a challenge. It's daunting in a way to have that vote of confidence. And I'm therefore also very, very happy that tomorrow we will um, meet, be at the State Department and have co consultations on the role uh, that we can play in the United Nations Security Council, a council that unfortunately has become extremely difficult uh, to run, difficult to work with, uh, but also of a, a key importance when it comes to dealing with uh, the uh, region of the Middle East. So thank you so much for listening, and I'm really looking forward to, to the continued conversation this morning. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you um, to Secretary Sutter for your remarks, and um, I think you framed our discussion very well in, in tackling the root causes of so much of the instability that we see here in the Middle East. And um, definitely do want to recognize Sweden's role in, in contributing to um, finding solutions to all of these problems. And I know that you'll uh, be doing that on the UN Security Council as well. Thank you to the Atlantic Council um, for setting up this important event and the Foreign Ministry of Sweden. I'd like to recognize that we have um, a lot of people from the embassies and from US government agencies, because obviously um, we need uh, to have a very full dialogue about some of these, these issues. And so I have a really great panel here today to uh, move forward Secretary Sutter's remarks. And we have practitioners working in in all of this, we have Paige um, Alexander, who's the Assistant Administrator for the Bureau of Middle East in USAID, US Agency for International Development. So really a practitioner with the US government working on, on solving some of these problems. And then Michelle Dunn, the Director and Senior Associate of the Middle East Program at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who I rely on a lot of times um, to try and sort through um, some of these complex issues. And then we have Mohammed Yunus, a senior analyst at the Gallup World Poll, who's really putting into perspective what the people in the Middle East um, and Europe see about their region and, and how we can help. Um, so we'll have, we'll have a, a bit of a discussion and then we'll open it up to your questions. Michelle, I want to uh, have you set the scene for us. Secretary Sutter laid out a Middle Eastern turmoil. We have several hot conflicts, Syria, the spread of ISIS, Yemen is, is, continues to be a, a real humanitarian tragedy. Libya is improving a bit. 
Um, it, it, what are the common threads you see here in, in terms of what's driving this turmoil and, and how we can help address it? Um, thank you, Elise. Uh, thanks to the Atlantic Council for inviting me. Um, Secretary Soder asked if we're looking at decades of war uh, in this region. Um, I, I hope not. I, I think we, we may be looking at some years of war yet. I hope not decades, but I do think we are looking at decades of change. Uh, I think the tectonic plates are shifting in this region. And um, uh, Secretary Soder mentioned a number of things related to the economies, which I think are very critical. To be honest with you, I think the, the rentier system, the system in the Middle East that was driven in one way or another by hydrocarbon revenues and so forth, whether in oil exporting countries or in the other countries in the region that were in a way beneficiaries of that. Uh, this is changing, right? The global energy, picture is changing, uh, oil prices of course have dropped. So, and, and there were also captive economies, you know, uh, in many cases. Um, even where there was a, a private sector in many, in many countries, it was a captive private sector. It still is for the most part in most countries. I'm, I'm generalizing here and there are exceptions. But, um, and I, I think what happened is that with a lot of population growth in this region in the last couple of decades, they just outpaced what these economies could provide for people. And what I see, Elise, is a real failure of human development in this region. It's really the human resources of the region that, uh, that need to be developed in order for the economies to be productive and these very young population to have jobs and so forth. And that just, that just hasn't happened. Uh, when I look back at the Arab Human Development Reports mm. that were published start, starting in 2002 and the deficits that they identified uh, of freedom, of, um, of knowledge, the education and the right kinds of education and of women's empowerment, I think they were prescient. I think they really forecasted what was coming in this region, a situation in which uh, the social contracts between governments and citizens have broken down to a large extent. And that's you know one reason I think why we saw these uprisings of 2011, there are many ways of explaining them. And I think you can build all kinds of different narratives about why the regional order started breaking up then. But this is one of them, I think, that the, the arrangement between the governments and citizens really started breaking down. And I think they have not been reconstructed at this point. They are, they are still broken in many cases, not in all necessarily, but in many cases. And to me, I see that the, the failure of governments to adopt policies that were really for the benefit of their citizens, human development policies, education, health, and so forth, and um, you know, giving citizens the freedom to have uh, economic activity, political activity, et cetera. This is what I see at the heart of it all. Let me just say briefly that I think for um, outsiders to the region, whether we're speaking of the United States, uh, Europe, Sweden, which has always taken a great interest um, in this region, it's, it really has presented a lot of dilemmas. All of this has happened, you know, this, this great period of change in the Middle East has begun, and I think it will go on for a long time, at a time when we wanted to be less involved, uh, for lots of reasons. 
because of the aftermath of the uh, Iraq invasion, as well as for our because of our own economic problems and so forth. Uh, and that meant that you know other players really stepped to the fore. Um, whether it is, and, and we saw a power struggle unleash among players in the region and now with Russia becoming heavily involved as well. And it, it's, it's made it a much more complicated and difficult region for us to engage with. And also, I think we, uh, our governments are used to dealing primarily government to government. And in many cases, I think the governments in this region don't necessarily have the solutions to the problems of their societies. Uh, I see. I see Matt Burroughs sitting here, and you know his his um, reports on global trends have really talked about the empowerment of individuals and non-state actors at the expense of states. We see that in the Middle East, and it presents a dilemma, I think, for our governments in terms of how to engage with states and peoples in this region. Yeah, I definitely want to get to that because the non-state actors are driving the instability, so perhaps maybe dealing just state to state isn't, isn't really the answer. Uh, Mohammed, I want to pick up on that because um, obviously, you know, you have polling throughout the Middle East about what the people um, are looking for and what makes them uh, rate their quality of life. You know, I was interested, Secretary of State Kerry um, continues to claim that you know poverty, poverty in many cases is the root cause of terrorism, for instance. But if you look at this new World Bank study on ISIS recruits, it shows that the majority um, are actually highly educated. 15% left school before high school, less than 2% illiterate fighters in Syria and Iraq, significantly more educated than the average population. Um, in their home countries. So let's talk about what your data shows in terms of what it is specifically that is making people in the Middle East disaffected. Well, um, thank you. And so obviously that must vary because absolutely. we're talking about yeah. you know maybe 25 Thank you, uh, Elise, and thank you uh, to the Atlantic Council. And it's, it's interesting uh, that you start with that question because it touches upon uh, something that Her Excellency just mentioned. Um, you know, it's it's very ISIS is is always talked about like as a monolith. Um, I think it's more of an idea uh, that appears in different forms in different places in the world, not just the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Tunisia um, and kind of gender parity in Tunisia, and, I, and I'll share with you some of the data we have on that uh, because it is a major problem in the region. But Tunisia continues to be the number one country where people are leaving to join. ISIS. Uh, certainly, the people leaving to join factor has completely changed now. But when it was really, you know, a big part of the dynamic, there were a lot of them coming from Tunisia. So, it's really easy to kind of cast a general take on a country um, and not see that the, there are actually underlying factors in that country that still make it a major challenge for the larger fight. Um, certainly, it's, it's very obviously hard to follow uh, Michelle on anything, but I feel like you covered the issue so. <laughs> Uh, broadly and effectively uh, that it, it's, I'll just sort of add data to that. Um, certainly the employment situation is a part of it, but it's really the combination of economic stagnation to a degree of hopelessness. That's really what we see in a lot of our data. And it's not just the Middle East, it's really everywhere. Even in the United States, the emotional well-being mm -hmm. metrics on respondents who are unemployed but have hope of finding a job look completely different than people who are unemployed and have no hope of finding a job. You add on top of that widespread perceptions of corruption, both in government and business. So you, you start to, to create a sort of a, a, a narrative of 
not only do I not have economic hope, and not only is the system broken, the system is actually rigged against me. Um, you add on top of that, that young people continue to be uh, discussed and talked about and talked to as a special interest group, uh, a minority community, even though demographically speaking, they are the absolute majority in almost every single one of these countries. So you have various dynamics sort of unfolding and that have been unfolding for a long time in the region. Um, the economic sort of structures of some of these countries have just kind of destined them to failure now. Um, I would add on top of what Michelle said, also the socialist past of some of these countries. If you look at sort of, for example, the constitution that was rewritten twice in Egypt, um, a lot of the promises made in that constitution, uh, the economic promises, are really just from a different time period. Um, it's not realistic to expect the central government today to provide all of these sort of economic uh, uh, you know, benefits to people um, where that's, that's not really happening in some of the richest countries in the world anymore, to kind of promise it to, to people um, in, in a very sort of underdeveloped economic state is, is very dangerous, uh, which gets to the, the final factor, which is um, really a lack of hope for the future to be better. So I'm hopeless today. Um, and what we find in, in our life evaluation uh, metrics, and we, we basically ask a very, two very simple questions, your life on a scale from one to 10 today and one to 10 in five years. One is the worst life, 10 is the best life you can imagine. Where do you place yourself on that scale? Um, and based on respondents' uh, numeric response, we place them into one of three categories. Thriving is the best, struggling somewhere in the middle, and suffering. What we see is thriving continues to decline in key countries like Egypt, like Turkey. Um, uh, of course, like Iraq and Yemen, as we would expect. But also, hope for the future on its own has also continued to decline in places like Turkey, in Jordan, um, in, very, in Egypt, certainly, in very key countries that actually are not witnessing mass violence and conflict, but are still dealing with these underlying issues that sparked some of the activities that we saw in the Arab Spring. You add on top of that the acute conflicts that are unfolding and the impact of those conflicts on very weak states, whether it's the pressure of refugees, whether it's the security concerns, whether it's the lure of these disaffected, alienated young people in these societies that are not witnessing conflict being lured to theaters of conflict in the region. So what was already a very challenging problem, I think the, uh, the conflicts now are really sort of exacerbating um, beyond any one country or entity sort of ability to deal with it. You, and Michelle mentioned the reality with Russia. I think as you know, the US uh, looks at this and the Washington community specifically considers what the next administration can do. I think it's gone from sort of what should the US do? It's gone from rhetorical question to really now an existential question in the sense of what do we want to be in the Middle East? Uh, because clearly there's been a rethink on that. Um, and I, I would argue that there hasn't been enough communication with the region on exactly what we're rethinking to, what we're going to. It's just kind of been hanging up the phone and nobody knows Maybe what we're up to. Maybe because we don't know ourselves, right? The part of, that's part of the reality, certainly. Um, Paige, let's talk about aid in this, in, in this context. You know, a lot of times when you have conflict, um, you see an increase in humanitarian aid. Um, you know, for instance, with the migrant crisis, you know, you'll give to some of the surrounding areas or, or just in terms of helping alleviate the humanitarian suffering. But is this more of a containment to prevent spillover as opposed to doing what needs to be done to tackle some of the root causes that Michelle and Mohammed are talking about? 
So uh, thanks, Elise, and thank you to the Atlantic Council and the government of Sweden for pulling this together. I think as, uh, as the secretary was mentioning, there are so many causes. The root causes are not just one particular driver. And so let me set the stage by talking about two specific pieces. One, what we at USAID had always thought were the drivers and our assumptions that we made. And then secondly, how we've now had to pivot from the humanitarian and the development to address those things in, in a more holistic approach. I think that we all know that the root causes have been political issues and continuing tensions among groups, but the significant drivers have always been the basic relative deprivation, whether it's resources such as water, uh, shelter, power, food, when you see in a humanitarian setting, or whether it's services where the government's unable to provide health or education, or whether it's the basic dysfunction of governments, be it a you know, weak government, a government that is non-responsive to its public, or a government that is authoritarian. So those are some of the drivers, and it really leads folks to, especially the youth, because we're talking about the youth bulge, uh, the question is, why would anyone resort to violence if they're not getting these basic needs met? So many of you have probably read the Mercy Corps study, Youth and Consequences, which was put out in 2015. And it really turned some of our assumptions on, uh, on its head. Because the fact that youth don't have jobs or are poverty stricken is not what makes them so willing and willing participants of political instability or violence. What happens is they're experiencing injustice. And as the study says, you know, they're not taking up guns because their concern is they don't have a job. They're taking up guns because they're angry. So that brings you to the question of, well, what are they angry about? They're angry about what Mohammed and, and, and uh, Michelle were talking about. The fact that they don't, are, they're not able to have uh, inclusive economic uh, opportunities, that the political inclusion is not there for them, and that there's the basic dysfunction of government. So their anger is accompanied by the sense of they don't have a voice. So what gives them a voice? You've got the traveling preaching of violent extremists who come to them and actually uh, pursue the, the change concept. Now granted, digressing for a moment, as, as the Secretary did, in many of our countries, change is actually something that's part of our political uh, theater on a regular basis. But when you have a thriving democracy, the change does not rep you know, is not taken out on violent extremism. Change is done at the ballot boxes or in other ways, and, and people are out of office. But when they're preaching violence and giving, imbuing a sense of uh, purpose for the, for the youth, that's when we've seen this move over. So how are we changing our thinking about how our response is? Normally, we've always looked at assistance through a very linear lens. You start with humanitarian, you take care of the basic resource needs, you move to stabilization, and then you do longer-term development. If this region has taught us one thing, it's the concept that that does not work. We need to collapse that linear continuum and recognize we've got to address all of these things at the same time. So we are addressing them simultaneously. And some examples, and, and because we have uh, our Swedish colleagues here, some of the examples are public-private partnerships that we've done, actually, we just launched this week in Morocco uh, with Volvo and with the government of Morocco and with UNIDO. And we're training 150 young men and women in the use of heavy equipment so Volvo can then have a new uh, source of jobs for created. Now, it's a very small program. It's not going to change the world, but it's something that can be scaled up. At the same time, talking about the refugee flows, we're looking at 
how do you address all of the refugees who are coming in to places like Lebanon and Jordan? And as they come in, they're hitting up countries that already had weak public structures. They were already low in economic development. They had the quality of school was poor, and their services were not good. And so how do we, as the US government, pivot our programs so we're not just addressing Jordanian and Lebanon as bilateral programs, but how are we addressing their ability to take in the refugees so they're not driven to extremism? Well, Michelle, I mean, talk about this, you know, kind of difference on in terms of combating challenges of weak states from a security perspective as opposed to dealing with some of these kind of root causes. I mean, you see countries like the United States throwing weapons sometimes at the problem or more from a security perspective, while um, in Europe, I think sometimes there's, you know, they're, they're very big donors and they're giving aid. I mean, where is the happy medium there? Right, so um, I, I agree, Elise. I think it's important to look at the strength of states in a different way. I mean, what, you know, um, understandably, with all the conflict in the region with the uh, rise of ISIS and ISIS actually taking over territory in Iraq, Syria, and Libya, uh, people tend to see weak states be, be meaning states that can no longer control their territory. And that's that's an important issue. But that's a symptom. But that's, that's a symptom, right, of a larger problem. It's a symptom problem. of a larger problem. And so I, I think we have had the tendency, because we uh, because we became discouraged, you know, at our attempts at state building in Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth to say, okay, all we, if, if a state is weak, all we can do is add coercive force, right? Add coercive force, whether it's through uh, security assistance, arms sales, uh, counterterrorism training and so forth. And I'm not saying that's not appropriate. It is appropriate in some cases. I think it's not sufficient because these states are weak in other ways. Uh, in ways that have to do with all the governance issues and the policy issues we've been talking about. Now the problem is, you know, external players can't go in and fix that. But what I do think we need to do is a couple of things. One of them is, you know, we, one of the ways we were trying to maybe not fix it but help was in dealing with, for example, civil society actors and so forth. And there's been a real pushback to that in the region. Um, you know, and the, the United States, for example, I think has, you know, has really backed off in a big way, not in every country. I mean, you mentioned Mor Morocco, Tunisia, um, you know, there, Jordan, Lebanon, there are still some countries that, that are, you know, okay with outside actors helping civil society players. But there's been a big change in other countries, whether we're talking about Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, et cetera, have, have really pushed back very hard. So that makes it difficult because it deprives us as, you know, actors to uh, sort of, you know, strengthen, uh, strengthen actors in these societies that, that we think are constructive actors that will actually strengthen these societies and these states. Uh, another thing I think we really need to do, though, is to look comprehensively at the mix of our engagement. You mentioned, Elise, and I, I think this is very observable in, in American engagement with the region, that it's tilted very heavily towards security and, and away a bit from uh, uh, the kind of economic and civil society and public diplomacy engagement. Uh, I know, you know, in some countries that has ramped up, but in others it's way back. And we, I think we need to sometimes look at our engagement with these countries and also 
you know, and look ourselves in the mirror and say, look, we can't change things in these countries, but we need to be honest with ourselves about the whole mix of engagement we have with these countries, and are we uh, a force for, uh, for, for, for peace and for strengthening these states in constructive ways or, or not. Mohammed, talk about um, what your data shows in terms of, I mean, obviously security is very important to people you know, living in these countries, um, but so is opportunity, so is political inclusion. Where is that balance in terms of, you know, a lot of times, you know, you, over the years in terms of U.S. policy, mm -hmm. it's, it's usually like one or the other. It's, you know, we're not going to, you know, security is very important or we're not going to sacrifice security for values. Yeah. So where is that, where it's, is that balance? So we've polled on exactly that uh, topic and consistently what we found, not, uh, not in every country in the region, but in the countries that really do have a very vibrant sort of relationship, uh, particularly with the U.S., and what we find is basically people are consistently saying they don't want any help in the political sphere, they want help in the economic sphere. And that's been shown in many different ways. So when we ask Does people- Does political mean security too? Uh, no, so specific, no, they definitely want help and security. By political, I mean working with mm -hmm. NGOs, mm -hmm. training uh, political organizations and parties, being involved in the electoral process. Um, so what they do want help with is jobs and trade. These are the things they mentioned, even in open-ended mm -hmm. questions when we say, what's the number one thing you think the US can do to help your country? Jobs, trade, commerce, these are the things that are mentioned. Um, in addition to that, uh, uh, in Libya, for example, a huge missed opportunity. We did polling right at, pretty much right after Gaddafi was gone. Overwhelming majority of people wanted support for their military services. They wanted to see the West come and help professionalize their military. We also asked them, do you want them to help with the political process in your country? Overwhelming percent of people said, no, we don't want them because to Because I looked at your recent data in Lebanon, it said 90% believe corruption is widespread in government. So that's something they want to deal with from within, but they can't. Well, Le I mean, Lebanon is a really unique, I think, right. situation. Because it's a much, politically speaking, it's a much more open environment. Right. Um, it's, you know, uh, it certainly has problems and the state structures are weak, but it's, it's not, you know, a centralized sort of dictatorship. But in a, question, in a country like Egypt, for instance, when they're not looking for help, is that because they don't want to be seen as tools of the United States? No, I think, quite frankly, I think that this is a really kind of a moment of truth for us as the U.S. I think they just don't see that as the path to achieving those goals. Because it's not that they don't want those things in their societies. And the polling also shows you, you know, attitudes about, um, uh, uh, right to assemble, uh, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Overwhelming majorities of people want to see that happen in their societies. But I think the reality is they've, re they've recognized now that that path to that is not going to be through U.S. foreign policy. It's going to be maybe through their own path. But what they do know that the, they feel that the U.S. can help with is what we were discussing back there, the Twinkie factory. To us, that's very funny that, oh, the Twinkie factory in Egypt is open again. To people locally, that's a really big deal. That, those are jobs. Um, and it sounds a lot less sexy talking about that here in Washington because obviously we're more focused on the acute conflicts and what's going on, and we should be. But if you really want to kind of touch people in those countries in a positive give way. Give them a Twinkie. Give, well, no, give them <laughs> no, a job I'm, making I'm being one. Glib, give them a job give making one. Give them a job making one. Because I saw in your um, survey on Saudi Arabia that people have had more optimism since this vision for. Uh, this 2030 vision came out that shows that there's an economic 
that there's some kind of economic plan for growth. Yes, and it's, it's, it, and it's important to, to, to kind of put that in the proper context. So when we did that polling was literally during a three-week period when the 2030 vision was announced. So it, it, as you would expect, there was a huge uh, um, expectation factor, uh, a huge hope for the future increase, which is the other side of this well-being uh, kind of metric is you want to see thriving increasing, but you know unmet expectations. I would I agree. I think with the poverty thing, I never you know I have never felt that poverty, and I've never seen anything that shows that poverty creates instability and revolution. What I have found is that unmet expectations create instability and revolution, and that can happen um, in the United States. That can happen in Lebanon. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of the narratives that we tend to use about the region, I think, have actually kind of popped up in the U.S. presidential election. Um, authoritarianism, uh, law and order, right. uh, you know, a lot of these kind of themes have so erupted here. how do you strike the balance between, okay, these people in the region, they want money, they want jobs, they want trade, um, but the U.S. also, I think, for most of its history, has kind of directed aid in a way um, and programs in a way that further American values, that, that are not necessarily contingent on the kind of political norms that we would expect, but certainly are not you know, in violation of them. And then I think mm -hmm. sometimes, as the Secretary said, aid is used as a tool um, of leverage in terms of getting governments to, you know, they don't want help on the political sphere, but a lot of times the United States feels that they need they need help in the political sphere and they want to see those changes. So how do you help do the development and things that they're looking for, but also um, use aid as leverage? So we can't want any of this more than they want it. And so that's part of the but reason. But you also can't right. throw money at Absolutely. countries that are not, um, you know, working towards at least political inclusion. Those right, things. right. And so in not wanting it more than they want it, we usually come up with a bilateral agreement that allows us to have a government-to-government -government agreement on the areas we're going to work on. We don't want to be so transactional in our assistance because, especially on the humanitarian side, international humanitarian best practices, we give to everybody who's in need. So, so you've got that piece, but the, the longer-term development, when we try to address the third sector and civil society, which I come to government from civil society, so I find it particularly difficult when we're not able to point to, uh, to strengthening that third sector. But as Mohammed said, when you look at the, the polling, that's not where they think they're going to get relief from. I mean, it, it's five, six, or even 10 on the list of their concerns, human rights and things of that nature. And we have a very large democracy rights and governance sort of platform because that's our moral value. That's our moral compass. But at the end of the day, we do recognize through the studies and through polling that what they want are jobs. How do you get jobs? You create, help create them by education and healthcare. Within that process, you build an advocacy, you make sure that people understand what their rights are, and understanding what their rights are, they have to hold someone accountable, holding someone accountable, that leads to governance structures. So we try to do it that way, but at the end of the day, we can't be in countries that uh, we're not wanted. And so we try to thread a very thin needle and use it uh, for to address our moral compass as well as what we think are the best democratic processes that could exist. Um, it's important to recognize, I think, that the economic and political realms are very connected here. And that, I mean, 
we, uh, the United States pursued for decades uh, economic development as a, you know, as a precursor to political development, you know, around the world. That, that's been disproved, that this is not. And I, let me give a very specific example, and it's specifically related to young people getting jobs. Entrepreneurship. Okay, for the past, you know, 10 years, I went to many meetings about entrepreneurship in the Middle East and bringing forward some, you know, uh, bright young things from Arab country X who are tech entrepreneurs and, and they're out there and God bless them. And you know, however, we're talking about sons and daughters of the elite. And we're talking about, you know, yeah, entrepreneurship is available, but to a very closed segment of society. Because in these countries, you know, the, the governments are, in many cases, there, there are a few examples, but in many cases, they are essentially private sector hostile, and the, the private sector is a closed game, and it's all related to political connections, to political patronage, to wasta, et cetera, wasta. right? It's not, you know, it's not open to everyone, and there are, and you know, the bureaucratic regulations, the way the laws, the red tape that has to be cut through to start a firm, the way financing works, getting access to credit. This is only for people who are part of the game and who are politically or socially connected. And that is why, you know, in many of these countries, you know, small and medium enterprises, which are the ones that really could and should create jobs for a lot of young people, don't. They don't, it's difficult to found them, it's difficult for them to grow, et cetera, right? Um, and uh, this is where the political and economic realms come together, you know, and why if there isn't political decision making, within governments, within parliaments, et cetera, to, so to speak, democratize market entry, then, you know, uh, then that's why you're not getting jobs for all these young people, and that's why economies are not productive and are not linked up to the global economy. So I, I, I'm sure this isn't necessarily what Mohammed and Paige meant by this, but I just, it's too easy in our discussion to fall right. into separating economics and politics well, into and two also discrete just, realms. I, I want to ask you a quick question and then, and then follow up on mm -hmm. that. And, I, and as the Secretary said, I assume that the pr proliferation of social media and the increase of information just continues to educate these people on what they're not getting. That's true, that's true. But I think that's true, like really in the developing world generally. It's not just in the Middle East. Um, but I wanna, I wanna clarify something. What I was saying is basically what we're finding in the polling. I'm not suggesting that we should pursue a China model for the Middle right. East. I was thinking of it. That's, no, I mean, I think we're all agreed that that's, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all part of human development. I mean, the political and the economic are, that's, that's what human development is. Um, you can't separate the two. But you know we kind of have to. God, I can't believe I'm quoting Donald Rumsfeld here. But you, you kind of you go to policy with the country you you know you have, not the one you want, right? Right. So the reality of these countries is entrepreneurship is one of the areas where people have been able to get involved and get engaged um, and not have to pay a huge political price for it. Um, countries have been more receptive to engaging you know outside actors on that subject. I don't think that that's the solution. But Michelle makes a good point that like here in America, if you're an entrepreneur and you got an idea, you can generally find a way 
Not everybody, but, but I think that's and become more increasingly becoming the case. I mean, right. certainly the country, there's no egalitarian sort of environment in any of these countries, but I think it's moving in the right direction. And I think technology is helping in that space. Um, actually, uh, the Atlantic Council put out a great paper uh, earlier this year um, uh, on this specific topic, on, on tech entrepreneurship and kind of what's happening in the region. And one of the arguments they make in that report is that uh, unlike a lot of other business sectors, uh, technology is really a very much unregulated sector mm -hmm. in a lot of these countries for some of these small businesses. So they've been able to actually make a lot of progress um, and avoid a lot of the red tape issues that a traditional sort of SME would, would face. Um, but certainly it's, it's a difficult environment to operate in. Um, certainly these private sectors need to be uh, a little bit more open to meritocracy and not just uh, um, uh, patronage. Um, you know, but we kind of got to deal with, with what we have. Um, ideally, none of us want to want to kind of deal with a situation at that level or at that stage. Uh, but we, I think the, the key really is how do we move the goalpost forward, mm -hmm. not how we make the perfect you interaction. Yeah, I do. I just, uh, because that's why we focus so much on legal and regulatory reforms and looking at the business sector because places where it's unregulated, unregul and I think Chris Schroeder's Startup Nation talked about this in the Atlantic Council paper talked about it. They can get a lot done sort of under the radar screen. But other places, there have to be legal and regulatory reforms put in place. And this is where a government can help triangulate, or numerous governments and the IMF can help triangulate. When they're on an economic precipice and you are looking at you know, what the IMF is going to do to help bail them out, some of those reforms are very much development reforms. They need to change their VAT. They need to float the currency. They need to make uh, uh, refugee assistance available. I mean, we did, we've done this for Jordan. We're looking at doing it with Egypt. We've done it with Tunisia. So this is a place where governments and IFIs can come together to help regulate it, to give space to people outside the elite. But I agree with Michelle. I mean, it's usually the elite. Yeah, and that's why when we're talking about these big drivers, I mean, this seems like so big picture to some, you know, kid that's looking for a job in Tunisia or Morocco or whatever. Um, we didn't touch upon sectarianism. I mean, you know, there's a common theme that, you know, the conflict between Sunni and Shia is a root cause of violence in the Middle East. What is your, what I is your? I, 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 I think that that's crazy. So like a lazy um, Yeah, I kind think of it excuse. just ignores yeah. history. Um, and I think that uh, it's like saying the Boston Celtics and the LA Lakers have an eternal rivalry uh, because they wear yellow and green. And it's like, no, they're competing over a resource. They want the cup. They want the ring. Um, in many of these societies, there are winners and losers. Um, and so it's not ethnic or sectarian. No, it's I think that those factors are mobilized by mostly non-state actors, but also in many cases by state actors with, with state-sanctioned religion to fuel these conflicts. But I don't think that the solution to what's happening in Syria and Iraq is to have a conference of Shia and Sunni scholars to agree, right. you know, whether or not the Prophet Muhammad wanted Ali or Abu Bakr to be the next <laughs> caliph. That's I think that's crazy. I just think that that's fodder because, I mean, for I think, newspapers. Well, okay, but there Sorry is a whole. Anybody. There is a whole cottage industry, Michelle, of people that think that it all comes down to the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Okay.
Okay, well, that's something different, though. Yeah, than, that's very than, different. Um, right, that's so I agree with everything Mohammed said. I mean, the only things I would add to that is, yes, of course, it's about a regional power struggle between the big powers. We've all been mentioning that. But it's not that. religious or but ethnic. But the other thing is, I think, to go back to the weakness of the states in many cases and the um, and the fact that you know when you see uh, you know people you know people in desperate circumstances are are reverting I think to more primordial um, you know group affinities in an attempt to protect themselves you know in a in a situation of conflict and so forth so um, you know I, I mean there there are factors I mean Carnegie has we we have a whole series of papers on sectarianism and so forth but it's it's about you know how these things the breakdown of, the breakdown of states and the regional power structure is fanning this i mean i agree with mohammed that it's not something essential but that's also the huge elephant in the room like i mean even washington for many for i think for a couple decades we kind of thought of the, of the middle east as the arab world and sometimes included turkey and sometimes didn't the big elephant in the room now is there's a pretty vibrant country that has just had the chains taken off which is iran and that just geopolitically, economically, culturally, religiously, that is going to change any region. Um, and I think more of our thinking in this next administration, whoever it is, uh, we really need to kind of think about the region, including Iran, a lot more. Uh, not just in terms of geopolitics and we don't like them, but economically, what role are they going to play in the region? How can the Gulf and Iran start to have an economic relationship generations down the line that can create uh, uh, shared incentives to kind of calm the tensions down. And again, you know, Iran and Saudi, maybe they're having a, a, a face-off or a conflict, but in the end, again, it goes back to resources. It's about resources. Who's going to lead? Who's going to control trade? Who's going to control the trade of Hormuz? It's not about you're a Shia and I'm a Sunni and I hate you, so we have to fight. It's about resources, and it always is. All right, I think that's a good, uh point to open it up to questions. Um, so I'm going to ask you to identify yourself and keep your questions short so we can have um, a, a full discussion. Over here. Hello, Elise. How are you? Uh, Andy Jude. I am from Latin America. I work for different media there. Uh, I, I'm following a very interesting organization in, in the online called Memory. M-E-M-R-I, mm -hmm. that they have something very interesting. They translate some of the messages in TV. Mm -hmm. So you can see it here, what they are saying in the Middle East about the Occident, right, or the Western world. I am really surprised. If you see what in the TV are saying about some of our countries, kind in, uh, messages that are absolutely hate, mm -hmm. but hate, I don't know, to the maximum exponent. And I am surprised they are still there, work, they're still there in the TV. And we, when we see all this, the situation also in Europe, all these uh, terrorist attacks and everything, what the TV is saying there? What, 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 what's their reaction? That, that's what really I'm surprised about what's going on in the Middle East. They cannot change the, the messages that the people are receiving every day okay. in those, in those TV programs. Andy, thanks. Mohammed, what about the idea that like, people are looking outward to blame you know, some of the other countries, and, and is that, is it more about hatred for the other than in terms of Well, of look, we did a lot, we did a lot of uh, uh, studies uh, several years ago on kind of perceptions of the U.S. Muslim-West relations, why they hate us, 
And basically, it came down to three issues. Two of those issues are pretty much gone now because U.S. foreign policy has changed. It was acute conflicts, the U.S.'s involvement in acute conflicts, political hegemony, the U.S. is trying to control the political realities in these countries, and religious disrespect. With Obama's Cairo speech and ensuing policies, religious disrespect is kind of not really a major issue anymore. And with the pullback from the region, um, uh, political hegemony is kind of, people are asking, it's interesting, a lot of Arab countries now are asking for more U.S. political hegemony, complaining that it's going well, away. Well, do they want the respect necessarily, or they want the help? I mean, well, I know, think it's they not, want, I mean, I don't think it's uh, a... Well, let, let me just go back. I, I, first of all, I think they want the respect, definitely, but they don't want help. They want, and, and we kind of conflated aid and trade. Those are two different things. What the polling shows is that they want trade. They don't want handouts. They want jobs. Trade, not aid. Well, Trade, and aid. both are it's needed, of course. Both are needed. And this yeah. is just sort of, you know, this is just what people are yeah. saying in the polling, but certainly both are needed in the real world. Okay. Can I say about the media? Yeah. I think the question was about yeah. the media. Um, look, I, and I, I don't, there, there's, a, there's a, a lot of diversity in terms of media in the Middle East, right? In some countries, there are, you know, independently owned media that are, you know, putting out all kinds of diverse points of view. But in a lot of countries, there are also state-dominated media. media. Uh, there are media dominated by political movements, say Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, and then there are media that are technically independently owned, but by people who are very close to the government. And it, it's also, so some of the uh, anti-American um, anti or anti-Western things you see in the media, I think are a, a genuine reflection of sentiments of people in the region and so forth, what Mohammed was just talking about. But you know, it's also true that I, I think some of the governments in the region play this game of you know, fanning anti-US sentiment in the media, uh, and, and some of them are governments that take a lot of aid from the United States as well, right? And this is an old, old game okay. of kind of, you know, keeping the, the uh, you know, diminishing foreign influence in your country by fanning uh, uh, a, a, lot, a discourse in your media against foreign powers. Okay. Um, we're going to go to Harlan, and then we're going to go to this woman right here, and then we'll move back a little bit. Uh, I'm Harlan on with the Atlantic Council. Uh, this conversation suggests to me we're on the promenade deck of the Titanic, and nobody wants to yell up to Captain Smith that there's something ahead you may want to put the rudder over. I haven't heard any big ideas. FDR had the New Deal, Truman had the Marshall Plan, Nixon had the Nixon Doctrine, the two-pillar policy, interestingly, with Iran and Saudi Arabia, the extension to China. Could you give us a couple of big ideas that we should consider? Because quite frankly, we're on the margin, and when you work on the margin, things fail. I, I'm going to throw it out there to the panel, but I would disagree that we're on the verge of the Titanic because when I read some of your polling, I see that there is some optimism um, among people in the Middle East, but I'll, I would leave it to you. Paige, let's have a yeah. big idea. And well, what's big the big idea you can propose? Uh, I thought it's your job, Harlan. <laughs> It's a think tank, right? You're thinking big ideas. Uh, and I'm sure the Middle East strategy group that's coming up with it from Atlantic Council will present big ideas. Uh, but I, I would say that, as Mohammed mentioned, the three things that were the drivers in this region before have been taken off. And that is when you're, so when you're moving the Titanic, it takes a long time to move the ship. It, the fact that we were able to address those three issues, I think, is pretty remarkable. What we do moving forward is going to be relevant to, as you say, Iran is a new player uh, in this region the concerns about the economic collapse that could happen in 
any one of the countries I cover because they're pretty much all on the precipice. So I think the big ideas are have to come, again, we can't want it more than they do. They have do. to come from the they region. They have to come from the region. And we have to be listening. And the big idea is we need to listen. And we need to not impose our assumptions that what we did in the West was you know, what we did in Central and Eastern Europe that led to these great transitions. And we graduated from all these countries. We're not able to do that in this region. Every single country, we're going to affect things differently. And as we move from humanitarian to longer term development, we're picking up the pieces in Yemen right now. I mean, it, we were doing biometric voting in Yemen a year and a half ago. And now we are worried about you know, feeding people and stunting and people dying on the streets. So, I mean, we go backwards, you know, two steps back, one step forward. So I think our real issue is we need to listen because the pulse is changing. So that's why polling is important. That's why the reports that we see coming out, that's why the new administration needs to listen very carefully to what the sense is on the ground and not come in with any preconceived ideas that we've got big ideas. Well, Harlan, look, I would just argue with your, uh, I, I don't think we're on the Titanic and the iceberg is ahead of us. I think we already hit it. Yeah. Okay. We're leaking. So, we're yeah. actually at the bottom. This is yeah. the problem, we're we're right? We've, we're, we're, we're already in the hit this boat. iceberg, right? And, and uh, the, the ship is breaking up and we're trying to decide, what do we do? Do we get into the lifeboats or do we, can we repair the ship, you know, and so forth? So I think we're actually at a worse point. Um, to comment on what Paige is saying about listening, look, I, I do think this is right, but the question is, is to whom? Because th this is this is the problem. You know, as I said, our engagement in the past has been largely government to government, and we still need to engage government to government. We're not going to stop doing that. However, um, that that is clearly not enough. So, if you want one big idea, I would say this: I think we need to return um, to the idea of uh, this the the uh, the need for. Um, for human development in this region as the thing that's going to take it forward economically, politically, and so forth, and rethink our own engagement in terms of how can we foster that. Uh, you Help know, develop civil George, society. Yeah, well, or no, I mean, no. And George W. Bush it. used to say something like, uh, we'll, we, we will partner with governments who invest in their people. I, act, I think that's a very... Um, you know, important idea that we somehow need to think about that, you know, about what can we do to um, encourage governments and work with others, with, with, other, with our allies elsewhere in the world, um, with non-state actors, international organizations, et cetera, for a real push for human development in the Arab region to, you That's know, because this is the resource. It's the people of the region. It's it's no longer the oil. Because that's a good point, because you say that they're not looking for help in the political sphere, but if their governments are not a, are not willing to help let a civil society and institution, you know, those type of non-governmental institutions flourish, then where are they gonna go, right? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think the, you're right, to, you're right to push us. That's a great question. Um, I think the challenge is that as, as sitting up here, um, I don't think we feel that the U.S. really is committed to pulling off another big idea. So to sit here and kind of, you know, elaborate on that potentially when we know there isn't really the will, uh, at least certainly not in the past eight years, to do something that's huge. We had a lot of statements about investing in young people after the Arab Spring. None of that really 
passed Congress. None of that hit the ground. Very few of that actually ended up happening. Um, and people in the region are very aware of that. The last thing people in the region want from, from our polling, from what we see, they don't want another American big idea. The last one was the Iraq invasion. So, and I don't, I don't mean that flippantly, I'm serious. I mean, we have to think about U.S. foreign policy is not what we write in our reports or what an administration sets out in a statement. The real U.S. foreign policy is the reality that's left on the ground for people in the region. And from their perspective, our U.S. foreign policy was invade Iraq on false pretense, have no plan, hand the government over to uh, basically an extremist uh, Shia Islamic political group, um, give Sunnis no way out, ignore their protests for months while the Arab Spring was happening in these other countries in Iraq, and then walk away and blame the Iraqis for not stepping up. That actually, they think America is all powerful, and that's what we wanted to do. And that's why you have people in the media saying, America's trying to destroy the region. That's the reality we're dealing with. Uh, but I'll, I'll still throw out a big idea. Building on, and I totally agree with Michelle saying about inv investing in human beings, human resources. Here's a big idea. Similarly to the Marshall Plan and the New Deal, have the US federal government commit a, a, a sizable amount of money that could make it a real program and totally tell every government in the region, we will come and completely revamp your educational program, which they actually admire about the United States. They admire technology, education, and trade. We will actually come and help you fix your educational program and put the pressure on the governments to explain to their people doesn't why that, do they want. I want to open it up more, but th doesn't that kind of reek of indoctrination, though? We well, got kicked look, out of Egypt for that. We got kicked out of Egypt. I, I mean, our, our program well, doing no, education we, we, got moved out of Egypt. More, and because we were doing a lot of other things with political groups. And, and look, Egypt is maybe not the best example because I, I, any government that's collecting a huge already U.S. aid bill right. from the United States has a very kind of tricky relationship with the U.S. government. Okay, but um, I'm, I'm just trying to throw out big ideas. Okay, <laughs> we're going to go to this woman um, over there. I Actually, I, I um, let's do it very quickly. Did you have a microphone? No, I don't. OK, um, let's take these two women right here, and then we'll go to this gentleman in the glasses in the back. We're going to try to wrap it up soon. Um, so my name's Taehee Kim. I'm here to represent Yazda, which is the organization that was started by survivors of the Yazidi genocide. Um, you know, those were, these were people, these, I'm sure people are aware of the women and the girls who were capt captured by ISIS, and some of them were as young as nine years old. Um, they're not receiving very much help, and I feel as though the U.S. is starting to lose legitimacy because of that, um, economic, you know, as well as, um, uh, you know, in terms of um, what the military is doing with the offensive in Mosul, um, there are airstrikes being um, planned, which, uh, are not, they're not guaranteeing that the women that are, and w girls who are still with the ISIS militants, they're being taken to Syria. When those uh, militants are killed, there's no guarantee that the women and girls are not going to be killed with them. And also, what happens if some of them are rescued and um, what we do? Okay, yeah, so the, so the question is, what can, the, what can uh, Americans like me do to uh, make sure that the political leadership gets its uh, moral compass back because I feel that this is the kind of thing that we need to be focusing on um, because there is no argument that that's something yeah. that, yeah, that <laughs> we need line. to be working on. I'd be happy on. to talk to you about it. Sure, absolutely. Okay. Um, this, this woman right here, because I did promise her, and then we're going to ask this one 
gentleman over there, and then I think we'll wrap up. Uh, I'm Manaz Afghami, president of Women's Learning Partnership. We work in 20 organizations, mostly in Middle East, North Africa. I wanted to uh, both uh, uh, appreciate uh, what has been said here, uh, and I think the Titanic idea could possibly be uh, more real than we think. Uh, if we look at the way that uh, the West, and especially the United States, has performed in the last 10, 12 years. If we go back to a military and security focus rather than the human development focus, it is very likely if there is another bombardment, another massive military reaction, we probably will be sinking together this time. But my question is, in terms of human development, we seem not to quite recognize the role that women are playing in the Middle East, North Africa. The generation that is coming up is the millennial generation. They have completely different connections with the world. They have a completely different way of looking at uh, uh, institutions and civic development and strengthening the women who are now in many countries 60% of university uh, graduates and they are entrepreneurs in Iran, for instance, that you just mentioned. A large majority are successful Great entrepreneurs. Question. This is our future, I think. You. Thanks. Thank you for your comment. And then we're just going to take this gentleman right here very quickly and then we'll Wrap up with some closing thoughts. Uh, yes, I'm Russell King, a retired federal employee. You've often heard in political discourse uh, the fact that um, um, you're calling a spade a spade when you use the term radical jihadi terror or radical Islamic terrorism. But that doesn't take into consideration co cover black propaganda and white propaganda. For example, a, a non Islamic country uh, that provides rose born export weapons would probably put agents undercover as jihadists. And, and also the, 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 the two countries that, uh, the nation states that uh, we attribute uh, Islamic terrorism to would be Saudi Arabia and Iran, and, and they do many Machiavellian type things that are not really Islamic. Can, can you give us a more nuanced view of what exactly a radical Islamic terrorism is? Is that really what it is, or to what extent might it be a cover? Thank you. Okay, um, Michelle, wanna, why don't we, um just going to throw it up to the panel. Why don't you talk about um, a little bit about uh, the radical Islam idea and um, Paige and Michelle, uh, I think the idea of women and, and how they um, are really important contributions to society. I actually, can I also talk about women? I was like, why don't you talk about women too? <laughs> You're a man. You don't understand. Much better. Yeah, it's yeah. reverse discrimination. Um, the, the women issue is huge. We see it in our polling until, like, as of now, the Middle East has the largest employment gender gap than any region in the world. That's been true for about three years. We started doing these reports three years ago, but it's obviously, in reality, it's been true much longer than that. Um, but at the same time, things are changing. I mean, my last trip to the region was three weeks ago. I was in a room doing a leadership coaching session uh, with a group of people who are executives in a uh, pretty impressive institution. The vast majority of people in the room were women. Uh, they were millennials. They were asking questions. They were pushing back. They were questioning my data. They, I mean, what's actually happening in many pockets of the region is very different than what we read in the papers. That's very true. And I think for those of us who fundamentally want to see the region move forward, we need to hold on to that and build on that in any way we possibly can, whether it's private-public partnerships, whether it's research, uh, whether it's, it's reaching out to people directly. Um, on the radical Islam issue, I, I think a lot of this has really become um, uh, 
I don't want to say rhetorical mm -hmm. argument. Mm -hmm. I think there is very serious ramifications to casting a, a blanket shadow on the Muslim faith and Muslims generally. All of our polling has shown that people in the, in the Arab world specifically uh, take religion very seriously. It's a very central part of their identity. Uh, the less sensitive and less effective we are in talking about that is probably not so great for reaching out to those people and building meaningful relationships. That may sound very softy to some people here in Washington that want to sound tough, uh, but I would argue that trying to sound tough really has not worked for U.S. foreign policy for a long time in that region, um, and we need to be a little bit more nuanced. And I think this administration has done a good job of moving us in that direction, at least in terms of the language that's being used. Thanks, Mohammed. Um, just on the uh, on the women's issue, yeah, I think that um, look, I, I just I met with somebody from uh, Bethlehem University yesterday, where the entering class is seventy eight percent women, mm -hmm. right? So this it, that's maybe a little more extreme, but as Mohammed noted, in a lot of places across the region, um, universities more than half of the students, yeah. well and more than half, shows. 60, 70 percent, you know, are women. So I think there is a lot of hope to be placed, uh, as Mohammed said earlier in the in the young generation in general in this region, in the young women in, the in this region. The questions that I'm left with are these. Is this going to be another, a, a generation that's able to realize its potential, or is it going to be a, another frustrated generation? Right now, they're very frustrated. And then the question for us as outsiders is, again, we can't answer those questions for the region, but we should look at our engagement with the region and our actions in terms of what are we doing? Are we doing the best we can to foster that you know, these young people and these young women are able to reach their potential? Yeah, and uh, just quickly on, on the two questions, one on the psychosocial sort of uh, trauma issues, I'm happy to talk to you offline, but between our Population Refugee and Migration Bureau at State Department, which deals with a lot of that in our democracy, uh, Rights and Labor Bureau, we actually have a number of programs that we do. And on the, the women's question, basically Mohammed and Michelle have answered it, but our programs are entirely geared this way. As I referenced the one that we're doing with Sweden, uh, with Volvo in particular, it's 150 men and women working on heavy equipment. We are gender neutral in trying to bring people in, but we make sure that the, uh, the classes, whether it's through education, whether it's through vocational training, that there is equal opportunity and when necessary, we focus primarily on things like let girls learn at the early grade reading program and bringing that up through the process. So we think it's very important. One of the USAID programs, it wasn't in the Middle East, but it was in Afghanistan. And I went to a program in Jalalabad where they were teaching women, young women, vocational skills like carpentry, electric, right. painting. Um, so when you talk about equal opportunity, I think, I think that was a, a really good example of that. Um, and I think the Yazidi issue um, is also very important to watch as um, the advance on Mosul and how these people are moving to um, Raqqa. I know the U.S. government and the United Nations um, envoy for women in conflict is, is very focused on that. So we need to pay attention on that. Um, well, thank you very much to the panel. Thank you to the Atlantic Council and, and Secretary Sutter. And, and hopefully this provided a lot for the next administration to think about. Thank you.